Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name in the church said. So we have been in a series on 1 John. Now, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, I would encourage you. We have, we don't do live stream here, but you can type in on podcast, anything, fixate Phoenix, because they kind of build on each other, but not really, but kind of. So this week is part three of first John, and I'm kind of titling it, um, open enrollment and the narrow gate, open enrollment and the narrow gate. Now, I'm going to get into this a little bit later, but I want, to, I want to kind of give a reason why we're focusing on 1 John today. Because I think many of us are like, okay, well, there's a lot of books in the Bible. Why are we just pulling one out of the clouds and just like, oh, let's just spend nine weeks on this one. But I think what's important to me, I was doing a really deep study on 1 John. And what I want to tell you today is that there's really interesting, um, and in my opinion, not talked about enough reasoning to why I believe 1 John might be one of the most important books of the New Testament. The first is the realization that this is the last of the letters written, most believe, that is authored 85 to 95 AD of the New, Test- of the New Testament books. He is the only apostle alive. He is the only disciple that has walked with Jesus. He's writing the last book that's going to be recorded in the New Testament. And he's giving insight into what is happening. He's literally walked with Jesus, built the church, suffered for Jesus, and is now seeing everything that's happening. And he's giving insight into what is going on. What's also interesting is that he has been through deep persecution. Rome tried to boil him in oil and kill him. Many believed that others tried to poison him. He's exiled on an island, on the island of Patmos for many believe anywhere from one to three years. He's someone who has walked for Jesus, but you better believe he suffered for Jesus, been persecuted for Jesus. You know what's interesting to me? Many of you guys don't know our story is me and my wife were supposed to take over a church in Michigan. We'd been there for 10 years. And I felt like as we were praying about God, are we going to to just jump off the cliff, move cross country from Michigan and just plant a church because we feel like we're supposed to. I felt like the Lord said, Micah, there's always going to be people who will be able to preach from a place of knowledge, but very few can preach from the level of sacrifice in which I'm calling you to. See, what I'm trying to say is this, is that I believe knowledge and sacrifice, these are two things that are synonymous with witness. Because in our day and age, we can pursue all the knowledge we want, but if we're not willing to sacrifice based off of what the knowledge reveals, then that knowledge doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. See, John's the only disciple who died of a natural death, but you better believe he still paid the price. And so what I'm trying to say today is this, is John has seen it all. He's writing out, he's writing out and lived through both Jesus's ministry, church expansion, Rome persecution. His perspective is unrivaled and he's giving context to what the church is facing. What he's looking out and seeing and what he's, what he knows of Jesus's ministry is like a course corrector to the modern church. And so what we've done is we real and what we've realized is this, is that the last few weeks is John introduced statements that many of us have heard a billion times, but we don't realize the profoundness of what he said. 
right? John writes out, you know, John 3.16, he has some of these, these terms, God is love, God is light. That's one we focused on, in which he's the first one to utter them and reaffirm the deity that God is. And first John, when we realize, is, the, is that introduction of God as light is really to bring illumination to the fact that he is the one who gives light to all that we are. The second thing is components of light or things that detract from the light is that what we focused on in 1 John chapter 2. But today what we're focused on in 1 John chapter 3 is a kind of a, a deviation away from that light. But I would say this, and I'm going to say it right now because many of us have maybe not heard a sermon on this. And I'm not going to say I have all the answers, but I am going to say we're going to discuss some of my thoughts. Today is about how... We get rid of habitual sin. And what I mean by that is unchanged, unchanged sin patterns. Things that have been present inside of us since the beginning. Even since our profession of faith in God, how do we get rid of these things? Because believe it or not, 1 John 3, in my opinion, is directly related to that. And what's sad today is we can all sit here and point out the, the speck in others' eye, even though we have a log in ours, but the speck being we know people who habitually are sinning, doing the same thing over and over, and, and professing lordship and professing faithfulness to God, but not having changed behavior. Or what I could say is having the knowledge, but not the sacrifice. And today what we realize is in 1 John chapter 3 is that, is that he actually addresses this pretty directly. Not only does he address it directly, but I think what he has to say and how he says it is very important for us to realize. But before we get into that, I've got a story for you. When I was in Michigan, that we had a, a church vehicle, and it, you know we upgraded to a church 15-passenger van because we beat the, the tar out of this vehicle so bad. It was a church Suburban. Now, I personally blew up the transmission on this Suburban twice. Some of you guys are like, is that a good thing? It's not good. It's not good. But we had, we had turned this Suburban into like a plow truck. It had been a work vehicle. It was, some, it was one where, you know, it's like a Suburban Seats 8. I'm pretty sure I've had 24 in it. How many of you guys got a, ve a vehicle that you're like, <laughs> you're like, okay, what's the seating capacity? Times it by three. We probably can do it. Probably can do it. But I'll never forget, I, I used to use this church suburban for literally everything you could physically imagine. And one of these things was we had beach nights for our youth and college ministry. And I had this kind of, um, assistant is way too big of a term because the people who know this person know he was, he was less of an assistant then. But his nickname was Dirty. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, wait, you called somebody dirty? You would understand. <laughs> I promise you would understand. But anyway, one day, the, the Suburban, we were taking it, and, and what we needed to do is we were taking it to the beach, and we had five five-gallon um, water uh, containers, you know, the big Gatorade containers. And not only that, but I had told Dirty at this time, I said, hey, go up to the church, fill these up, put all the Gatorade in and come back and pick me up because I'm going to get some stuff ready at my house. Now, at my house, I lived about a quarter mile away. So he goes up to the church, fills these, so 25 gallons of red Gatorade, right? Fills it all up. And I remember he's coming back to my house and I'm watching him. He comes down and he takes a left turn and he takes the left turn a little quick and as he takes the left turn, he's pulling down my driveway and I can see just red Gatorade just running out of the bottom. And I mean gushing. 
And I look at him, and I mean, his face is white as a sheet. Because he looks at me, and he knows, and I know, that he just spilled 25 gallons of red Gatorade in that car. Now, many of us have spilled a drink. Or like, think about one gallon, right? If you spilled one gallon of something, you'd be like, oh my gosh, right? Think about spilling 25 gallons of red Gatorade. Okay, so the best part is I'm like looking at him and I know in my head what he's done and I know he's not going to tell me. And the best part is, is I can see them like tipped over and I'm like, dude, why aren't you grab? I'm like screaming, grab and pull them up. Don't let him empty out all over. And guess what? They did. 25 gallons of red Gatorade. Now, here's what you need to understand about 25 gallons of red Gatorade in brown shag carpet is you better believe that car looked like a red highlighter. That carpet just, and it didn't matter how much we vacuumed, it didn't matter what. Now, for about three weeks, it stunk bad. But it always had this red hint in the carpet that anybody who knew, if you look close, you're like, yeah, this definitely has had 25 gallons of red Gatorade spilled everywhere. But the reason I tell you that is I, I think that a lot of us, what happens is when we come to Christ, we've had messes, we've had things that spilled things that have gotten all over. And as trying as we might to to remove them and clean them, there's always this little residue, this little thought in the back of our head that we're not clean, that we're not whole, that there's still something there. And 1 John 3 actually addresses this in such a healthy way, but also it addresses the people who aren't willing to get clean, who aren't willing to be made whole. And I want to challenge you today, if you maybe feel like you've got the the hue of that red Gatorade still in the carpet, God's here through sanctification, not for full removal, because I believe part of that is your story and your testimony. But in the same regard, and he wants to strengthen, champion, and then use that pain as the platform for your witness But I would also say for those who are in this room where we don't really want to clean up the mess, we don't really want to do anything, that there's an invitation to greater sacrifice today. So let's read the Bible. (laughs) 1 John 3, here we go. Reading 12 verses today, so if you've got a Bible helmet, you can put it on now. That was a joke. Anyway, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. One of my favorite verses And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is one of my favorites in 1 John. A hope fixed on him that then purifies and becomes pure as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin, now actually pause, before we get into verse 9. So there's these first three verses where you're like, dang, these are good verses. Like I'm a child of God. Like if my hope is fixed on him, I am purified, right? There's these good verses and then it shifts. In the next nine, what you're going to see is he's going to break down the people who sin and sin repeatedly. 
who practice lawlessness and lawlessness repeatedly. And he's going to talk about it pretty pointed. And this is, like I said, this sandwich aspect of encouragement of being a child of God, encouragement of being purified as God is, but then the righteous indignation of what happens if we're not willing to change or we take advantage or what we would call in the Christian term sloppy grace. Here we go. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and the sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known him. This is an interesting, I mean, once again, we get into the point where all of us right now, we're like, okay, so the bar is set pretty high. Many of us, like, we're all reading this, we're like, okay, well, this week, then I am definitely disqualified. Let's keep reading. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Once again, these statements where it's like, okay, you cannot sin, but you can't sin. It feels like a little bit of a moving target, but let's keep reading. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteousness, or were righteous. What I want to talk about today And I want to give an analogy that kind of gives a little bit of a clear picture because once again, I feel like this idea of, okay, I'm going to live righteous, but at the same time, like, what if I do sin? But at the same time, like, if I do sin, what does it look look like to like repent and turn back? Because this is like pretty cut and dry, but like, I feel like I am a child of God, but if I am a child of God, how does this and what I want to do is I want to kind of tell a story, and I'm going to incriminate myself this way, but I want you to picture in your mind right now, growing up, what that esteemed school was around you. Maybe it was a private school. Maybe it was one of those where you lived in the suburbs and you were like, dang, that one is like uh, awesome. Or it's one where you looked at everybody and like, they're so snobby, <laughs> Right, But I want you to think about a school that, that had this reputation of like sterling excellence and expectation. Now I want you to think about that school because I actually was blessed and went to a school that was like that. <laughs> so, so in my mind I was like trying to think of one and I was like, dang it, I went to the school. <laughs> but I want you to realize this, Okay. There's a code of conduct to maintaining enrollment in that school. And the code of conduct really just is how you function as a person. For instance, not saying this was me, but if it was, at recess, if you were to look at somebody and yell, screw you, in front of a bunch of kids in third grade... And then they took you to the principal's office and the principal looks at you and says, why did you say that term? And you look at him and you're like, I don't know. 
And he looks at you and he says, well, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. Now, the reason I tell that is because, now think about it like this. What happens is, is then I have a choice. We don't do that here. It's a statement to, okay, change your behavior to maintain the enrollment that allows the benefit of what that enrollment is that brings about transformation, maturity, and development. And what I'm saying today is this, is I believe, see, this is what I'm, what I'm getting at, is when I talk about open enrollment through the narrow gate, is when we sin, what happens is the Spirit brings us into that place where we're confronted with truth. We don't do that here. And what I mean by that is what happens is, is that truth and conviction sets in where we sin and immediately it's, we don't do that here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to change the behavior so that we can stay enrolled in the blessing of development that can take place a part of this. But what happens is, is the choice is this. Are we going to continue to do the things that we know could cancel out and remove the benefit Or are we going to change behavior based off of what we've been placed into? And what I'm trying to get at today is this, is I believe that if we take advantage of the benefit by not changing to the standards of what involvement looks like within this school, then I could lose access to the place that my development and character and gifting can't become what it can be called to become. You know, what I'm trying to say is this, is I believe God brings all of us into this kingdom, this open invitation, which many of us, we don't understand the significance of what that means, right? Judaism, this thing that had existed, the Jewish people and culture for thousands of years, when Jesus comes on the scene and church expansion happens to the Gentile, which is another term for the unsaved, uncircumcised, or anybody not a part of that, the 12 original tribes, when that comes, that is a profound moment in human history. Now, they believed there could be proselytes, those who could be baptized in and circumcised and take, take on the signs of the covenant and be immersed in the culture. But very few did that because of the cost. And what I'm trying to say is this, is I believe for a lot of us, what we don't realize is we've been grafted into this enrollment of development of our personhood, character and gifting. In which when we stay consistent pursuing the narrow road instead of the wide gate of destruction, we find that fulfillment and wholeness that only God can offer. Habitual sinning is us knowing that we want to be enrolled, but not doing the basic enough requirements to actually stay apart. And I actually want to read that Matthew 7, 13 through 14, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. I'm going to change this. For the gate is wide and the bad habits, bad choices, bad decisions, bad patterns. That's broad. That leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. What I would actually say is for the standards are high. And what it takes to be a part and to see that development through is going to cost you. But it will be leading to life. 
And what I would say is, I don't think that God looks down from heaven and says, oh, I'm disqualified, 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 disqualified. I think he looks down grieving from heaven and saying, man, because of how they function, they'll probably never know me to the depths that they could have. Because of deception, because of not willing to pay the costs, because of not willing to sacrifice, because of not willing to change their ideology, because not willing to really submit to my word or my wisdom, because they're not really willing to hear or accept anything contrary to their own opinion, man, they're probably not going to know me to the fullness that I purchased. And I want to say this to you today. See, you can keep enrollment but not be passing. I'm going to say that again. You can keep enrollment, but be failing. Does that mean you get the benefit of attendance? No. And what I'm trying to get at today is I think that some of us, right, in, in American church today, it's been a really interesting last few years. First you had COVID and then there was a COVID correction in which it feels like there was a sifting of leadership, principle, priority, and character. In which God says, okay, these things are no longer permitted anymore and I will remove the people who have permitted this type of standard. Because enrollment is not okay if you're failing. And once again, this is what I mean is I don't necessarily believe that Jesus looks down from heaven and goes, yep, they're definitely not coming up here with me. But I do think he looks down and his heart is grieved. Because he says, man, they're not willing to sacrifice and they don't realize that they're not willing to sacrifice, but they're actually sacrificing depth in me. Because it's not about sacrifice within the lens of sacrifice. Some of us, we look at the habits, the routines, the patterns, the sinful thoughts and the sinful uh, behaviors that we've all grown accustomed to that we just let permeate us. And what we don't really realize is we're sacrificing intimacy. We're sacrificing deeper relationship. We're sacrificing sensitivity of the spirit that keeps us protected and in the narrow gate. So today, I want to talk about how to stay enrolled in narrow gate access. How do we stay enrolled in narrow gate access? The first one is this. A child of God is not one who possesses physical looks and legal guardianship. It's one who has the likeness and character that proves who their father is. We prove our likeness by our godliness. I want to say this to you today is I believe that a lot of us, we profess godliness, but is the godliness producing likeness? Because when we read the phrase, you know, oh, I'm a child of God. Most of us, we can think today, what classifies and constitutes a child? Legal guardianship, physical looks. Some of us have kids that, in, in, in here that you're like, I don't know how you act like that because behaviorally, I don't know where that came from. Or your kids are perfect. <laughs> and you're like, where did that come from? Like Jason and Liz and Austin and Rachel. And every other parent in here. Gosh, some people are like, well, why'd you just pick them? What about me? <laughs> But what I'm getting at today is that godliness produces likeness as it pertains to being a child of him. That there's no like legal thing. There's no like, oh, you look like Jesus. Like, no offense. I don't see very many people in here from the Middle East. 
trying to say, all of our kind of natural inclination to understanding is child of God. Okay, well, that means in our day and age, okay, born of, look like, legal, kind of protected and loved-ish. But child of God in the Bible is likeness. And likeness is just another term for godliness. Do you look, not look, act like behaviorally, wired, how you talk, how you interact with the world, can it be traced to God? And really what I wanted to challenge you on today is because a lot of us, right, there's this understanding that we, we need to grow past this spiritual milk Season And there's actually a, a passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians, I'm not going to read it, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 through verse 3, that talks about how we can't feed them real food because they can't get past the spiritual milk season. And how many of us, I want to say this to you, how many of us want more from God but are still on a milk diet of behaviors and disciplines because we have not overcome our sin patterns and prioritized character development? How many of us right now are frustrated with our relationship with God, constantly wanting more, but not really feeling like we're getting it? I want to challenge you that that's usually a deep-seated discontentment, is that holy discontentment, in which you're not challenging God to reveal more of himself to you. He's challenging you to reveal more of yourself and what you're dealing with and get it out there and over it. And as sad as it is today, I know plenty of people who, man, man, I just don't feel it. Yeah, I don't really know. I just haven't experienced. Oh, it's dry. And it's like, dude, have you looked in? So most of the time, the problem isn't out here. It's in here. It's in here. And I would even say most of the problems you have with people aren't actually problems with people. They're problems inside of yourself that you're projecting onto people. And I want to say this today, as sad as it is, I believe we want to be fully mature, but we haven't progressed past the milk of God. I won't sin anymore. Or if I do sin, I'll be quick to repent. But I'm not going to have strongholds that are really strangleholds on my life in you. Because we all want to mature, but do we want to do the work necessary to mature? The second thing is this. Purification is the process of becoming like. If you don't want to, be, to live pure, you will not become like. You may keep your seat at the table, but you won't be allowed to taste what has been prepared for you, filled up on the wrong things, craving the right ones. 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's another aspect of this in 2 Corinthians 11.3 that I love. It says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I'm going to read this again because I think there's an interesting paradox in here. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What I want you to realize is that one is simplicity of devotion, the other is purity of devotion. And both of these things, if they aren't present, can be leading astray. 
I want to say this. It is too simple to just be faith and follow, but way too hard to live pure. And both of these things, this is what I think is interesting, is in some lenses we have like this, okay, I've went to church long enough and I've kind of tried my best and, you know, I don't really feel like I've changed much. And then you have another lens where you're like, well, have you lived fully pure? Not pure within just the sexual uh, relationship or, or region of our lives, but have you lived pure in how you talk to people, love people, love the world, prioritize God? Have you lived pure in your intent of being a person? Have you lived pure within your thoughts and within your... Man, and all of a sudden you realize like, okay, the simplicity of faith to follow God almost seems like we've watered it down to where it's like, okay, well, I've done that. Showed up to church. But then purity? Don't be led astray by faith or by purity. Don't be led astray by how simple faith feels and how far purity feels. And I want to say this today. That we have to understand that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let that sink in. I love this because purity, when I say that word, a lot of us are like, ooh, that seems like a pretty, it's a far target. But we don't realize that there's promise wrapped into it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, many of us, whether we want to unknowingly or say it to everybody, is we'd love to see God, but are we willing to pursue purity that would allow us to see? The third thing is this, my last one. Stop using poison to water seed. The seed grows in an environment conducive to growth. Habitual sin hijacks an environment of growth and kills any life in Christ that is trying to take root in you. If you're poisoning the roots with sinful behavior, don't be mad when you never eat of the fullness of a surrendered life. 1 John 3, 9 through verse 10, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. I love that statement. Nobody born of him practices sin. Now, when we look at, when we read it in the Bible, we a lot of the times disassociate the terminology of practice. Like, okay, well, you know, God, I'm not going to practice sin, but practicing sin really is this constant rhythmic behavior in which we're doing something over and over and over and over. And what I'm saying is, is that reality of over and over sin is watering the seed that he's placed inside of us with poison and wondering why we don't have a root system for it. There's a reason that, that Christianity was so countercultural when it came onto the face of the planet. What it required of you sacrificially, what it required of your behavior and your social makeup, what it required of who you are. One thing that I've been studying even recently is it was so countercultural Christianity that you risk disassociation from the synagogue if you were a Jew that would convert. What that really meant is to be disassociated from the synagogue would be branded as an outcast. You would lose all social standing. Most Jewish communities were so tight knit that you would lose social standing. You would lose the financial ability to provide for yourself. You would lose that place of practicing your religion. You lost everything. 
And so it's interesting to me that, like I said, we as people, we, some year, we sit here and we say, God, I want my, your seed to abide in me and to grow into something good. Yet we water it with sin repeatedly. See, what a lot of us don't realize is subliminally we have practices of sin that as we sit here, we might become more aware of. But how many of us have practices of righteousness that we're aware of right now that we're doing? Rhythmic behavior of righteousness that is watering the seed. Rhythmic relationship that is rooted in him that's watering the seed. See, some of us were wondering why the seed isn't growing and we're not, we're unknowingly watering it with the wrong thing. Because we've got habits of sin. Do we have habits of faithfulness? In closing, that same suburban a few years ago, I got a call really late at night actually from Javen and Stephanie. And uh, they had picked somebody up at the airport and they had broke down flat tires. I'm talking looking at the exit sign. And they called me because I lived right down the road. So I went over there and I was like, okay, can we inflate this tire? No, can't inflate it. I'm crawling under. I'm like, okay, can we get this to the church? We are two miles from the church. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm on the side of the highway. Can we get this thing there? No. I mean, it's, the tire is so shredded that the rim is sitting on the ground. So I remember I'm looking and I'm like, okay, we can't get it to the church two miles, but I can see a Panera parking lot about a half mile. And I know that this thing is broken down, but I know I can drive it to a spot to where it would be protected, but it won't be at where it should have gotten. So what do I do? I climb in sit there and just pray the whole time. And I drive this thing at like 10 miles an hour, just scraping and sparking the ground the whole way. Just, you can just hear it grinding on the ground, just the rim. And just like, it's 11 o'clock at night. I got no choice. I literally park it at the Panera, go home, spend the night. I'll figure it out later. (laughs) It was so close to getting to where it was intended to be, but it broken down right before you want to know something sad to me is when you see people with character with ability and with gifting that are going places but break down right before it marriages that break down parents that break down people who have crisis midlife crisis where you're like how could you have made these terrible decisions Everything looked like it was going so good. And I want to say this today is that we need to have a constant awareness of the things that we need to change so that we don't find ourselves broken down wondering why we are. And not only that, not are we bro- not only are we broken down but we're not able to get to the destination that he has intended for us because we weren't aware of the things we needed to change to ensure we could get there. And I want a destination of fullness and fulfillment. 
I want a destination in which you know God in such a profound way that church really, yeah, it does something communally, but something about being alone in your word with nobody around encounters you in such a profound way that you have no other choice but to change. I want these things for you, but you have to be aware of the components of your life that could be breaking you down before you could ever get to that place. There's open enrollment in the kingdom, but the lifestyle, behavior, and patterns of our personhood determine if we make it to the narrow gate. Let's stand to our feet. As we go into worship, I'm going to just try to kind of rhythmically start building this in. But I I just got challenged probably like six or eight months ago on just the Lord's Prayer. And now I've been just trying to recite it two to three times a day over my life. And I'll say this, I, I, I like got goosebumps the last time we did this. But rhythmically, whether it's once every two or three weeks, what I challenge all of us to do is if you know the Lord's Prayer is to recite it with me as we go into worship for no other reason than we are just commanded to pray like that. And I don't know where you are with feeling like you're, you're walking open enrollment into that narrow gate, but some of us, I know there's a conviction of like, man, I know I'm enrolled, but am I actually going to be developed? know that I have a place, but do I actually, like, am I actually going to make it? Am I failing? And today, it's not that I I didn't come here to beat you up with, with condemnation, but I did come here with the intent to challenge you that holiness, this word that's been uttered for thousands of years, is not just this man-made idea but it can be something inside of you in which you experience heaven in a way you never thought you could. And the behaviors and the habits of bad decisions, of watering the seed that he's placed inside of you with poison, these things, we can remove them, but it'll be our choice. Because we're children of God. So with that, said, if you want to repeat with me, but let's just enter into the Lord's Prayer in a time of closing worship together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be 